Specifically in Kuala Lumpur, there are thousands of thousands of thousands of families from all over the world that are awaiting resettlement. These are people who were displaced from their countries due to war or religious persecution and are now awaiting resettlement to another country. You know, in our church there, we served many, uh, many people who were there in Malaysia as asylum seekers, as refugees. And um, for them, Malaysia was a temporary dwelling because they didn't have permission to work there. They didn't have permission uh, to do things that citizens do. They didn't have many rights. They were basically only able to exist there while they await resettlement. So what happens is that they don't get to make Malaysia their home. We have friends who have since been resettled in other countries, some of them right here uh, in the U.S. We have other friends who are now in Canada, in Paris, all over the place, and who are now thriving and flourishing in those places. They have now found a place to finally call home. But you know, we also have friends who arrived to Malaysia years before we did, and who are still there awaiting resettlement. We left Malaysia in 2015. They've been there way before we even arrived there, and some of them are still there waiting to be resettled, just hoping that one day they will be able to get to where they need to be. In the meantime, they live there, and they are reminded every day that Malaysia is not their home. And still, they make the best of their time there. They seek to find ways to provide for their families. They serve in the church, and they live life. But you know what? Their status as refugees affects their lives in significant ways. From the way that they build relationships on the way to the way that they even purchase furniture. Their status as refugee defines their life while they are in Malaysia. You know, in our time there, I met asylum seekers who do their best to make it work. And I also saw people that grew bitter and ended up hating Malaysia. The reason I'm telling you this is because Spiritually, we find ourselves in a, in a similar situation. By this, of course, I mean that as Peter tells us, we are exiles in this world. Jesus himself told us that though we live in this world, we are not of this world. St. Augustine, famous theologian, used to say, I used to use the analogy of two cities to describe the duality in which we find ourselves. He said that as children of God, we are temporary citizens of this earthly city but we are destined to an eternal city of God. Church, just as my refugee friends, we too ought to be aware that this is not our home. No matter how long we're here, no matter how, comfort, how comfortable it can be to be here, this is only temporary. Our home is elsewhere. So we too should live our lives in light of our exile. Today's text, you'll see, will illustrate the reality of the tension we live in. And I believe Daniel and his friends will model for us what it looks like to live like exiles or sojourners. Would you please stand with me for the reading of the word, and then we will pray. This is Daniel chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. And it says, In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. The Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hands with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, um, 
to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family of the nobility, youth without blemish of good appearance and skillful in all wisdom and dealt with knowledge, understanding and learning, competent to stand in the king's palace. Basically kind of like me. Um, and to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. The, and this is the word of the Lord. We will stop right here, minus the part I added. Uh, but how about we pray? Uh, Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you have spoken, Lord, in your mercy. You speak to us and you, uh, you bring light to our path. Father, you guide what we do. You speak to our souls. And so, Father, we pray this morning, would you speak to us? Would you give us humble hearts to hear your word, to be corrected by it, to be encouraged by it, to be built up and to be shaped into the image of your son, Jesus Heavenly Father, I recognize that I am a broken man, and Lord, I pray that you would help me today as I preach. I pray, Father, that if there is anything that I say that does not align to the truth of your word, anything that comes from my own understanding, anything that comes from my own making, Lord, I pray that it would fall down to the ground and be forgotten. Father, I pray that as a church, we would have discernment, Lord, and that we would judge everything through your spirit and by your word. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. So church, the first thing I want us to see is that God is sovereign over our exile in a foreign land. If you were here last week, you might remember Tim explained uh, that, that King Nebuchadnezzar had attacked Jerusalem and besieged it. The theological implications of this, though, are huge. For starters, I want you to see the tension between human agency and God's sovereignty. We see that just as Alexander the Great, Genghis Khan, uh, Napoleon, and more recently, let's say Putin, and many others would after Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar wanted to expand his kingdom through conquest. He was an ambitious and powerful man who conquered Israel, not because he cared about Israel, but because he cared about himself and his power. Verse 1 gives us the historical narrative because it tells us what Nebuchadnezzar did but verse 2 gives us the theological explanation behind it. It tells us that Nebuchadnezzar was able to conquer Israel only because God gave it into his hand. So here we see what I like to call the concentricity of wills, which is a fancy word to say that we see two wills at play in these two verses. First, we see Nebuchadnezzar's broken, ambitious, and selfish will right? He wants to conquer. He wants to take for himself. And on the other hand, we see God's will, which the Bible tells us is good, acceptable, and perfect. And yet we see how these two very different wills are concentric and they meet, right? This is what's going on. And there is a theological explanation to Daniel's uh, exile. So what I mean by concentric wills, is that God is so great that he even uses our nastiest impulses to bring about his sovereign will. When Nebuchadnezzar, uh, what, what Nebuchadnezzar meant for evil, God used for his glory. You see, God's sovereignty does not remove our human responsibility. Something else I want to point out this morning is, um, and this is something Tim mentioned last week, is that Nebuchadnezzar's conquest of Israel was also a result of Israel's sins. From Deuteronomy to the prophets, especially Isaiah and, and Jeremiah, God had patiently, repeatedly warned his people of what would happen if they turned their backs on him. 
And this is exactly what they did. They turned their backs on God. So Daniel now and his friends find themselves as exiles in a foreign land because of Nebuchadnezzar's evil plans, but also because of their own sin. And most importantly, because it was God's will for this to happen. You see, the exile of the Jews does not disprove that the God of Israel is sovereign. As a matter of fact, it affirms it and proves it. In the same way, hardship in our lives never disproves God's will or his presence with us as his children. So now we see four young men that were providentially thrust into a new strange land. And even though Israel was only about 500 miles away from Babylon, these guys were basically sent to a different world, a different universe. You see, beyond the language barrier, beyond the strange foods, these young men had to grapple with a clash of cultures, morality, and religion. This was a dizzying tapestry that challenged their very understanding of the world. But you see, in this strange land, they clung to the unshakable truth that God had not forsaken them. His sovereignty was their very comfort. And it was a reminder that they were never alone. They knew with unwavering faith that if God had allowed this, worship, uh, this hardship, he also would offer provision for them. These men knew that God is sovereign over their exile even when it was a direct result of their foolishness. And church, so it is with us. Are you going through hardship today? Can I remind you then that God remains powerful? He remains in control. He remains good. He remains faithful. God is so good that even in the midst of our hardship, He remains faithful. And He can use that and turn it into something good. Now, the second thing I want you to see here from these first four verses that we read is that it is a dangerous thing to make this foreign land our home. And just to clarify, when I talk about a strange land, a foreign land, I don't only mean the United States of America. I mean the world we live in. I wasn't born here. I was born in Guatemala. And so it is a foreign land for me in, in, in one way, but a lot of you guys were born here in Titusville. And so what do I mean then by a foreign land? By that I mean this world. The world we live in is not our home. So even though we see in the example of Daniel and his friends that there is hope for our exile, we would do well not to forget that we are exiles. As a matter of fact, it's dangerous for us to forget that we're exiles. It is a dangerous thing for us to make this world our home. About this, Russell Moore says something that I found very uh, helpful. He says this, he says, The danger for us at the moment is not that Christians will see themselves as exiled in a far country, but that they will see the United States or Canada or whatever they are, uh, wherever they are, as a promised land. Such means either that they embrace everything around them as milk and honey from God, or that they seek to uproot the Amalekites and Philistines that have taken our country away from us. That's a sign that we are not exiled enough. Church, I think he's absolutely right. So I want to expand on this if you don't mind. You see, there are two dangers on getting too comfortable in this world. There are two dangers in seeing our country as the promised land. First, it is dangerous because if we see this country as our home, as Moore says, 
the promised land, we will want to embrace everything in that land as milk and honey from God. That means that if, as Christians, we believe that the U.S. is our home, we will get comfortable and we will be conformed to its ever-changing culture and morality. And church, this is a dangerous thing because it can eventually lead us to apostasy. Now, you might be thinking, Christian, that's a bit an American of you to say. And I would say, no, it isn't. It is perfectly appropriate for you to love your country. But there is a huge difference between loving your country and making it your ultimate home. I love this place. Unlike many of you, I actually had to earn being here. Seriously, I had to pay money. I had to fill out countless forms. I had to take a test that apparently 80% of Americans are unable to pass in order to be here, right? And so I had to earn my American citizenship. And the reason I'm saying it is because I want, to, I want you to hear this. I love this country. I'm thankful for this country. But I am very aware that this country is not my home. I'm also aware that if I'm not careful, the comfort I find in this country can lull me into self-centeredness and passivity and can rob me from my actual home. Church, ultimately my hope is not tied to this place, and I hope that yours isn't either. Another reason that seeing our country as the promised land is, um, is dangerous is that we may think it is our mission to eradicate from it those whom we deem as other. What do I mean by that? Whenever you think this place is my home and my hope is tied to the success or the well-being of this nation and its government, whenever your identity is rooted as who you, in who you are as an American, and you see this as your ultimate home, the promised land of God, there is a danger that you will see those that you call other, you will see them as the enemy. You know, if we are not careful, we might see those we disagree with as a threat, as our enemy instead of our mission field. Usually, that enemy is those who look differently. Other times, that enemy is those who think differently. And sometimes, that enemy is those who vote differently. Or those who sin differently. You see, church, this is why we see at times culture warring replacing the gospel in the church. What we see in Daniel and his friends is not cultural warriors. What we see God worshipers who love their neighbor and respect their king, even in the midst of the most anti-God culture. Well, what do you say we keep reading? Let's go to verses five, and, uh, five, six, and seven. And I want you to see this. It says, The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. They were to be educated for three years. And at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel he called Belteshazzar, Hananiah he called Shadrach, Mishael he called Meshach, and Azariah he called Abednego. Church, it would be no surprise, it should be no surprise for us to see what this passage is telling us. And that is the fact that the world is seeking to shape your hearts and your minds. 
In this story, we see the king of Babylon uh, taking the best of the best from the land of Jerusalem. He obviously wanted to transform these young men and mold them into Babylonians so that when they went back home, they would turn their city, their country, into Babylon. So what did he do? He fed these guys his own food. But he didn't just give them food. He also gave them a Babylonian education. He even gave them a new name. I want you to see the depth of this. In biblical times, names had meaning. And I don't have time to go through all of them, but if you have time, just look it up later. What does, what does Daniel mean? I mean, what do, what, does, what, do, what do their names mean, and what do their new names mean? Now, for us, in 2024, names are important, but not as important. You know, it would be different for me to move to the U.S., and now everybody calls me Chad instead of Christian, right? Or um, It would be weird, but hey, you know, it doesn't have a whole lot of meaning. But for them, it was the very core of their identity. You know, in 2018, and this is so random, uh, but in 2018, Macaulay Culkin asked the Internet to change his middle name. Do you know that? He didn't like his middle name, so he asked the Internet to suggest middle names and to vote for it, and then he said, and I'm going to go change it. And so Macaulay Culkin's name today is Macaulay Macaulay Culkin Culkin. Um, Because that's what the internet chose for him. And this is my favorite. The second vote, or the second vote went to Macaulay MacRibbis Back Culkin, which would have been my preference. But anyways, besides the point, why am I telling you this? It's because for us, names don't really matter that much. They're cute. They're interesting. But they don't mean what they meant back then. At that time. The king of Babylon not only wanted to change their bodies, he wanted to change their minds, and he wanted to change their identities. You see, Daniel and his friends understood something that we shouldn't miss. They knew that every land has what Charles Taylor calls a social imaginary. You guys are familiar maybe with the term worldview, but worldview is a personal thing. A social imaginary is a little different, and so let me explain what it is. In simple terms, the social imaginary refers to the shared beliefs, values, and images that shape the way a society understands and interprets the world. It encompasses the collective ideas and concepts that influence how people perceive reality and interact with one another within a given culture or community. Marshall McLuhan, a Canadian media theorist and philosopher, famously said, We don't know who discovered water, but we know it wasn't a fish. Now, why did he say that? He was suggesting that fish are so immersed in water that they are blinded to it. They don't realize it's there. In the same way, we humans are so immersed in our culture that we often don't see the underlying assumptions and beliefs that shape our lives. Church, that's not only true of Daniel in Babylon, but it's true of the world we live in today. It is a fact that the land we live in has its own social imaginary. Even if we live in the Bible Belt, the social imaginary of this land is not consistent with biblical truth. You know what James tells us about this? In James chapter 4, verse 4, he says this. He says, you adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Church, it is a dangerous thing to be friendly with the world. Now, Just for clarification, this, of course, does not mean that you cannot have friends that aren't Christians. I mean, Jesus didn't even do that. The world, though, when the Bible speaks of the world in this context, 
The world is a system that is characterized by sin, injustice, greed, and rebellion against God's will. And it is a dangerous thing to be comfortable and friendly with that system. You see, church, you and I live in a world that is trying its best to influence us. Our world wants to shape not only our minds, but our hearts, our desires, and even our identity. According to James, this results in enmity with God, and so we better be careful. If you don't believe the world is shaping our beliefs and desires, then explain to me why there are 10-year-old girls in my son's class with Stanley Cups. Why? Or why did mullets and mommy jeans somehow make a comeback? Right? I mean, <laughs> that was way too quiet here, so I apologize if I insulted anyone. <laughs> but here's the thing. Culture tells us what is good and what isn't, doesn't it? There have been clothes that I've worn that years before I had promised I would never wear that. Right? These are, of course, silly examples, but reality is much worse. You see, the social imaginary, the water we live in and don't see, influences us in ways we don't even see. It influences our desires. It redefines our morality. And so we better be watchful. This is precisely, precisely why we need the Word of God. Because unlike the social imaginary, the Bible is the only source of eternal and unchanging truth. You know what the problem is with being shaped by the social imaginary? Is that it's ever-changing. It's a moving target. Keeping up with it is exhausting and nearly impossible. That's why culture today uses the term boomer as an insult. You know, our culture today mocks the very people who were seen as revolutionary in the 60s. Those that hold the same beliefs and the same revolutionary thoughts and beliefs from the 60s are now considered old boomers. Right? They're looked down on because our social imaginary is a moving target. And keeping up with it, with its language, is exhausting. People that led our political parties 10 or 20 years ago are not good enough anymore. They're considered either not conservative enough or not progressive enough because their social imaginary changes. The Word of God doesn't. The Bible is an immovable truth. It is a firm foundation. If you want to stand on solid ground, you better get on the Word of God and not depend on what culture tells us. The Word is a shield against the influence of this foreign land. And that is why Daniel and his friends resisted the influence of Babylon. Well, let's keep reading. Let's go to verses 8 through 16. And it says, But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my lord the king, who assigned your food and your drink, for why should he see um, that you were in worse condition than the youths who are of your own age? So you would endanger my head with the king. Then Daniel said to the steward whom the chief of the eunuchs had assigned over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, Test your servants for ten days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water uh, to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance and the appearance of the youths who eat the, food, the king's food be observed by you, and deal with your 
servants according to what you see. So he listened to them in this matter and tested them for 10 days. At the end of 10 days, it, is, it was seen that they were better in appearance and fatter in flesh than all the youths who ate the king's food. So the steward took away their food and the wine they were uh, to drink and gave them vegetables. So here's what I want you to see from this passage, church, is that as exiles, we must resolve to, res to resist the influence of Babylon. Here is where Daniel gives us a model of how we should live as exiles in a foreign land. First, we see Daniel's resolve to resist the influence of Babylon. But as he, uh, as he pursues ho uh, holiness and resists the world, he encounters, he encounters tension, pressure, and pain. See, church, Daniel and his friends know that their faith puts them at odds with the culture around them. They know that as foreigners, things won't be easy, but they're resolved to honor the Lord by refusing to be conformed to Babylon. Daniel doesn't want to defile himself, so he makes an appeal to the chief of the eunuchs and tells him he doesn't want to eat from the king's table. Here's what I want you to see. Whenever we pursue holiness, whenever we try to live as the people of God, we will always encounter tension, pressure, and pain. Here, first, we see the tension. The tension he, here's the tension between two fears. The fear of the king of the land versus the fear of the king of the universe. In verse 10, after hearing Daniel's request, so Daniel's telling him, hey man, I don't want to be eating of the, ta of the king's table. He humbly makes an appeal to the chief of the eunuchs. And he tells him, listen, I, we don't want to be eating out of that table. And what does the eunuch say? He's like, listen, I fear the king that gave you that food. So don't put me in this, you know, in this situation. So that man fears the king. But Daniel and his friends fear the king of the universe. And they resolve not to defile themselves. So what does he do? He humbly appeals with him to help him. You see, here we see the contract, the contrast again between the chief of the eunuchs, who fears the king of Babylon, and Daniel, on the other hand, who fears the king of the universe. But I want you to notice how Daniel deals with this. Because as he sees this tension, he doesn't rebel against the chief of the eunuchs. He's not obnoxious or arrogant. He doesn't, don't, he doesn't look down on him. And he doesn't make him his enemy. He doesn't even declare himself a martyr. But in humility, he reasons with this guy. And guess what? God gives him favor. Church, for us to live a life of obedience, um, there will always, we will always find tension with the status quo, with the way that the world works around you. You know, your friends might find it odd or even a little ridiculous when you choose to live in a manner worthy of the gospel. And I know it can be awkward, but let us be like Daniel and resolve not to be defiled by the world around us. You see, there are other times when tension becomes pressure. That's when, when those around us will pressure us to conform to the patterns of this world. We might be pressured to conform our morality standards to what the world tells us is right or wrong. Or we might feel pressured in how we use our time, how we use our money, how we use our bodies. We might feel pressured to watch the right movies or the right TV shows, and we might be mocked if we don't. Church, let us not give in to pressure. And like Daniel and his friends, 
Seek to honor God. Notice the, the difference between Daniel and the Pharisees. Daniel did it humbly because he wanted to honor the Lord. The Pharisees condemned the world around them because they wanted to glorify themselves. Church, it's also worth pointing out that Daniel and his friends were only four of all the young men that were exiled. But you know what? We never hear from the rest of them. We never know, we never hear or read what happened to them. But it's not hard to imagine that when dealing with this tension and pressure, they gave in and took the easy path. They were probably conformed to fit Babylon, but far from making them relevant, they were swallowed up by Babylon. Finally, there might be times when tension and pressure might turn to pain. Because of your faith and convictions, you might lose friends and family. In some places, you might lose your job, and at times, some might even lose their lives. And that is painful. This is a silly example, but back when the Supreme Court struck down Roe versus Wade, I wrote what I thought was a new one's post on Facebook. I was thanking God for it on the one hand, but on the other hand, I also mentioned that being pro-life goes beyond just striking down abortion. And I challenge fellow Christians to see that uh, the end of Roe versus Wade, not as the end, but as a first step into the work that needs to be done. Honestly, I don't think it was harsh. I don't think it was surprising at all. If you know me, <laughs> if you know me at all, it shouldn't have surprised anyone, right? And still, you wouldn't believe the blowback I received from both sides. I was both accused of hating women and of being too woke. I lost friends. I was called a bigot by young women that I had pastored in their teens. I was unfriended by even fellow Christians. And can I be honest? It hurt. It really hurt. And if I'm completely honest, there were even times when I was tempted to correct because I didn't want to be looked down on. Now, this is silly compared to what real pain is, to what real persecution is. There are people who, because of their faith, will lose their, their uh, jobs, their friends, their, even their lives. Back when we were in Malaysia, I shared the gospel with, uh, with some students, and one of them was a 14-year-old Muslim girl from Afghanistan. And for many, for many months, she resisted. She, she, she knew there was something drawing her to the gospel. But she would always stop short. One day, finally, she tells me, Christian, I had a dream. Jesus showed up in my dreams last night, and she was mad about it. And she's like, but I think it's time for me to give my life to Christ. And I said, awesome, let's do it. And she said, Christian, but I just need you to know. This... If my dad finds out, he might kill you. He might kill me. And so there is pain that comes with honoring the Lord. There is pain that comes whenever you, you turn to the, to, to the word and try to live in a manner worthy of the gospel. But you know what? Something, you know something I learned after living among refugees and people that were religiously persecuted? that the people that are less likely to have a martyr complex are people that are actually in the midst of it. 
Daniel doesn't do that. Daniel doesn't see himself as a victim. He doesn't see himself as, you know, as a victim. He sees himself as a child of God. Anyways, this should remind us that such is life in, you know, of, of Christian exile in the, in the age of outrage. During this season, we will face tension, pressure, and pain, and yet God remains sovereign over it all. This leads us to, our, uh, to verses 20, I mean, 17 to 21. And here I want you to see how God provides for our faithfulness while in exile. Verse 17 says this, it says, As for, those, uh, for these four youth, God gave them learning and skill and all literature and wisdom, and Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. At the end of the time, when the king had commanded that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar. And the king spoke with them, and among all of them, none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore they stood before the king, and in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters in all his kingdoms. And, Daniel's, and Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. Earlier I mentioned that Daniel and his friends knew God was sovereign over their exile. Here we see that as they resolve to honor God and resist the influence of the world, the Lord provides for them everything they need to succeed where he has them. For the third third time, we see the words God gave. First, we saw earlier in the chapter that God gave Jerusalem to Nebuchadnezzar. Then we read that he gave Daniel favor with the chief of eunuchs. And now we see God giving these men everything they needed for what he called them to do. He gave them learning, skill, wisdom, and understanding. You see, their status as exiles and foreigners did not get on the way of the calling God had for them. They did not cross their arms and pout. They did not droop their hands in passivity. They resolved to succeed in Babylon. And as they did that, they honored the Lord. Church, notice that while in a hostile land, uh, in a hostile land, land sorry, my accent's coming in, um, they didn't give up. They also didn't resort to isolation. They didn't resort to culture warring or outrage. But they submitted to the authorities over them, even though their authorities, their authorities were objectively evil. Church, I think Daniel, uh, something that Daniel and his friends can teach us, is that we can glorify God not only when we resist the influence of the world, but also when we submit to our authorities, even authorities that we don't, that, that we don't believe deserve our submission. Did you know that the morals or the character of those in government doesn't release us from the call to submit to our authorities? And if you don't like it, Take it up with Paul. Take it up with the Bible. We're in Romans 13 where it says, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists these authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. Tim said it well last week when he said that our refusal, or I'm paraphrasing, phrasing here, but our refusal to submit to our authorities is a theological statement. I know this is counterintuitive, but the Lord actually calls us to do this. We glorify God when we submit to our governing authorities, 
but we also glorify God when we resist them if they are leading us towards disobeying God. This is a pattern we will see in the first six chapters of Daniel. We'll see how Daniel and his friends honor the rules and the authorities of Babylon all the way to when he goes against what the Lord is calling them to do. When that happens, they humbly resist at every time we see God acting on their behalf. Now, the Bible is filled with stories of the people of God resisting the world. Many times we see God delivering his people. Miraculously, he delivers his people. But at other times, we see his people laying down their lives for the glory of God. Church, obedience to the Lord doesn't always come with a promise of deliverance. And certainly not with a promise of ease and comfort. The author of Hebrews tells us this in Hebrews 11, 13 through 16. He says, these, and this is talking about people who were faithful. He says, these all died in faith. Not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of the land, uh, of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. And church, this is not only true of the people in Hebrews 11, this is true of you and me. If you are a child of God, God has prepared a city for you, and the city is not Titusville, as great as it may be. Church, we will never regret choosing faithfulness. We would do well to be like the people in this passage and remember that this place is not our home. We are headed to a better country we are headed to, headed to a heavenly one. Just like Daniel and his friends, we too get to trust that faithfulness to God is the way to go, no matter the cost. Earlier I said that Daniel and his friends were a model of how to live in a strange land, how to live in exile. Well, you know, we have an even better model in Scripture. There was another Jew that would leave the comfort of his home and be sent to a hostile land. He too would be tempted by the enemy with food, and he would resist. But ultimately, when he stood before the authorities, he was actually put to death. Philippians five, uh, 2, verses 5 through 11 says this about Jesus. It says, Have this, among, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that, the, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Church, let us be like Christ and follow his example. Who while living in a strange and hostile land, emptied himself. He spent himself serving others. Was obedient to the point of death. He submitted to his authorities knowing that God would bring about salvation through his obedience. 
And because he now sits at the right hand of the Father, we too can live our lives as exiles, knowing that no matter how hard it may get, he awaits for us in a new country. And this is where our hope lies. I'm going to call the worship team to, to come up. But as they come up, I do want to speak to those of you who may not call yourselves Christians. I don't want to assume that everyone here is a Christian. I don't want to assume that everyone here would agree with me. And I'd like to talk to you if you do not know Jesus. If this is you, can I first thank you for being here? Really, I generally mean it. Thank you for being here. You don't owe it to us. <laughs> if that is you, I also want to apologize. I'm not apologizing about the sermon I just preached or about the Word of God, but I do want to apologize because I believe that in the last few years, much damage has been done under the banner of evangelical Christianity. And I want to say to you, I am sorry. I'm sorry if you've been hurt by Christians who have believed this land is their promised land. I'm sorry. I also have some bad news for you. As Christians, we often make mistakes. We are broken and far from perfect. And I know at times, people who call themselves Christians have been harsh. And this is not who we are to, uh, called to be. And so again, I am sorry. But I also have some good news for you. First, though Christians make mistakes, Jesus Christ does not. When we are harsh, Jesus is gentle. Also, I have another good news, and that is the fact that the fact that Christians are imperfect is actually good news for you. Because that means that there is room for you in Christ. Jesus calls not those who are perfect, not those who have it all figured out, but he calls those who are weak, those who recognize that they need a Savior. In summary, he, he's calling you. All you have to do is repent and call on his name to be saved. You know, for those who make this world their home, those that don't know Jesus, this broken world is the closest they will ever be to heaven. As we read earlier, God has prepared for his people a city, a home, a home where he is our God and where we are his people. So my question is, where is your ultimate home? Is this broken world your ultimate home? Or do you have a hope? Do you have a hope beyond it? And so this morning, can I ask you, would you call on the name of Jesus this morning? If you want to do that, we would love to talk to you at the end of the service. We'll be here at the end of the service. We'd love to pray for you. We'd love to talk to you. If you have questions about Christianity, we'd love to grab coffee with you. Just let us know. But with that said, church, this is not our home. We have a hope and we have precious promises according to what Peter tells us. And we have reasons um, to glorify the Lord. We have reasons to celebrate. So this morning, would you stand with me as we respond to the word of God in worship and singing?